0: instead of waiting for them to follow up with you be aggressive about getting ahead of that and talking to them when you have a problem there's something unexpected there's a new custodian there's a problem with the data maybe there's a local law that requires you to go through a certain process to get them the data rather than having them realize after a few months that they haven't heard from you and you blew some deadlines being sure that you're the one coming to them with a good rhythm good cadence is really one way to handle
1: this. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you are in for fun today because I have Mike Unicke and Laura Perkins, and we're going to talk about the changes to the Department of Justice's corporate enforcement policy that were announced in January by Kenneth Polite. used to be called the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, but it's now been expanded to a much broader remit of white-collar crime. So, guys, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the It's time to visit with me on this topic today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having us.
1: One of you guys tell us what the corporate enforcement policy is.
2: Sure. I'll start off. So the corporate enforcement policy is guidance to prosecutors on how they should evaluate a company's violations when they come to the attention of the department. So when the Department of Justice is investigating potential criminal violations against a company, This gives guidance to prosecutors as to what they should be considering when it comes time to make a charging decision. So should they charge the company with a crime? Should they give the company a deferred prosecution agreement? So the form of the resolution, as well as whether there should be a monitor attached to any resolution and how the fine should be determined and what that fine should be.
0: Tom, it's also known as the, the bane of law firm associates everywhere because every time they update this, they have to help draft an alert. And you know, we should say thanks to ours as always here for helping us with this. But we've talked in the past, Tom, on other podcasts about remembering back in the days to the Holder memo and the Penalty memo and then the U.S. Attorney's Manual and then the you know this sort of thing. And it's all part of the same, but it's just as Laura said, it's the guide for prosecutors. But it's also the unofficial guide for companies. And how they can position themselves best in the event of a problem to either avoid prosecution or to mitigate the consequences of.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point by Mike. It is also, in addition to being internal guidance for prosecutors, it is the department's attempt to send messages to the market of sort of behavior that they would like to see from companies. So letting them know if you do X, you get Y. If you do Z, you get A. That sort of message.
1: I viewed the police speech and the changes to the corporate enforcement policies in many ways as a continuation of the Monaco memo. I thought there were several, if not unanswered questions, perhaps open questions from the Monaco memo, particularly around how the DOJ would characterize recidivists going forward. In the interim, we had the ABB FCPA resolution, and I now understand how ABB got the resolution they did, which we all thought was great, but the memo seemed to, I don't want to say step back or cut back, but perhaps further refine how the DOJ would look at recidivists trying to encourage them to self-disclose. So I really wanted to maybe ask as open-ended a question as I could is how do you guys view this speech as part of, or perhaps separate and different from the Monaco memo?
0: For me, you know, we have several clients who are coming off of settlements and for me really it's as much as well what do we do to stay motivated, to stay invigorated on their compliance efforts after the settlement. There's usually a sigh of relief when that happens and there's a confirmation that you've satisfied the terms of that. What I see this as saying is don't be afraid of admitting to being a recidivist if you are one you still can get credit for having the right program in place, for being able to come in and report, and for doing the right things from the DOJ's perspective as far as cooperation.
2: I totally agree with that. I also think it is somewhat what you were saying, Tom, which is it's trying to fill in some of the gaps that were left by some of the earlier announcements, as well as to add a bit more transparency to the market and benefits for self-reporting. I think the department wanted to further incentivize self-reporting not just by recidivists, but by others as well. And so I think we'll talk later about what some of the changes are in this updated enforcement policy, but one of the major ones being increasing the maximum potential fine reduction that a company can get for self-reporting. So it's a further effort by the department to incentivize self-reporting. There's also some things about extraordinary cooperation, so pushing for more cooperation from companies, as well as what Mike said, which is a focus on letting companies that are recidivists understand that there are still benefits and adding a bit of transparency to what those benefits are in an effort to essentially not ensure because they do keep discretion for prosecutors, but in an effort to sort of help companies who are recidivists make a decision to come to them.
1: So your colleague, Mike DiBernardis, said about the ABB FCPA settlement that he thought the DOJ threaded a needle to get to the settlement, given ABB's three-time recidivist posture. And now with this document, or at least the remarks by Kenneth Poley and the changes in the corporate enforcement policy, I saw how they were able to thread that needle. And after listening to your answer, Laura, it strikes me that The DOJ really not only wants recidivists to come forward, but they put real incentives in place, even for a company that might be a second or now third time FCPA violator. Would that be a fair characterization?
2: I think that's right. And I think it's important also because this policy is no longer just for FCPA violations. You know, it's broadened now. And so if you take a financial institution, for example, I mean, they're heavily regulated. So- When DOJ expanded the definition of what is a recidivist, you really brought a lot more companies into that realm. So a lot more companies became, quote unquote, recidivists in DOJ's terminology. And so there are a lot more companies that you need to provide some assurances to that if they come in, they won't be slammed or they'll be given some of the benefits that the department has tried to identify for companies over time.
0: I'm waiting for someone to say, wait, so what if we waive attorney-client privilege over documents and we go down that road again, that rabbit hole from the late 2000s, that extraordinary? So maybe we'll talk in a bit about what extraordinary means and if that's if there's a workable way to think about that or not, but that's my main takeaway from that.
1: I found one component extraordinarily interesting, and it was the following, that Kenneth Polite said the DOJ would evaluate a compliance program at two points in time, one at the time of the incident and two at time of resolution. Now that in itself was not new. The DOJ has said that many times in the past, but by focusing on the point in time at the time of the violation, they further defined compliance program effectiveness as having either an effective program which detected the violation or an internal control system which picked it up. So hopefully that includes whistleblowers, internal controls, speak up, whatever it may be. And I was extraordinarily pleased that the DOJ focused on the compliance program at the time of the incident, because I thought that gave a real incentive to companies to not wait until you're in a settlement or investigation to move in and remediate, but do so now. And you could save real money. I was wondering what your all's thoughts on that part of it might be.
0: It's one way to actually empower compliance officers, Tom, is to give them some clear guidance like this, that there is a benefit in addressing these issues and building out a program early. And we've talked about the controversy in the context of the certification requirements, whether that was truly empowerment or not. I think it's a huge benefit for compliance officers to be able to point to this and point to those two points. It's a bit of a flip side from what we saw in the Monaco memo to your point that this is kind of... A continuation of the dialogue, and dialogue we've had for decades with DOJ, where they expanded the scope of the criteria on which a monitorship might be based. And in that context, they suggested that, well, we might still impose a monitor on you if the conduct was really bad at the beginning, regardless of how good your program is at the time of resolution. And so at least there's some hat tip here to having the right program in place at the beginning.
2: I think the changes here can be very helpful to compliance officers and really do point to the department's focus, like you said, Tom, on the program at the time the violation occurred. They're sort of shifting the look even more to that period of time. Yes, there is still a look at the time of resolution, but that really relates more to whether you'll get a monitor. And there's always a lot of focus on that in an attempt to not get a monitor following a resolution. But can a recidivist, for example, not get any kind of a resolution because their compliance program detected the violation and they were able to and did make a decision to come in, self-report the conduct to DOJ. There is more focus on what was the status of your program. So I think it does provide a clear incentive for companies to continually maintain a good compliance program and controls that can detect these violations. And then the company, of course, has the decision point once a violation has been found or a potential violation, to decide whether to self-report. But even if they don't self-report, the existence of a good compliance program at the time of the violation will be evaluated and will be a factor, an important factor under the new guidance.
1: We turn now to one of the other very big changes, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, Laura, which is the now up to 75% discount, which is possible. I have studied the U.S. sentencing guidelines for 15 years. And I pride myself as one of the few non-prosecutors who has any idea what goes into it. And there's a lot of factors. And then from those factors, you get a range and obviously a low range and a high range and a middle range. But Laura, what I, and I'm directing this question to you as the former DOJ prosecutor on this panel, what I saw with that 75%, in addition to just that number 75%, coming off the low end. Because I've seen companies that are above that low end at 5%, 10%, or even in the middle range, and it's tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions to be in a higher range than the low end. So to me, 75% off the low end is almost kind of a double plus. It's 75% and then it's the low end. What are your thoughts on that part of this change?
2: That definitely is a significant change. It was put in place to further incentivize self-report, to say, look, if you come in, if we decide you need a criminal resolution, you can get a very sizable discount. Because when the pilot program was first put in place, when the corporate enforcement policy was put in place, capping at 50%, even off of the low end or mid-range, was lower than what had happened in a lot of previous resolutions. And so there was a lot of criticism, frankly, that, look, you're putting in place this policy In order to incentivize self reporting. But in fact, what you're doing is cutting short the benefits we could have received before you even put this policy in place. And so now they've raised to 75%. And that can make, like you said, a market difference in the amount of criminal penalty. Under the sentencing guidelines, the corporate fines stack up quite quickly. You know, they're based on a number of factors, a large one being the profit that the company makes, and then multiples are added to that. So it can get very high, very fast, and the range can also be very large. So like you were saying, Tom, the difference between the low end and the high end can be significant. And then when you say, okay, we're going to give you a discount of 75%, and we're going to guarantee essentially that it's on the low end, that is a significant change for many companies.
1: And I would even further throw in that That's not all the discounts you get because the US sentencing guidelines provide a discount uh, as well if you self disclose, cooperate, and take ownership of what's happened. So I've always seen this as sort of a double plus, starting with the original pilot program and the corporate enforcement policy. So I think there's a real discount available to companies that would follow this. Mike, your thoughts?
0: I think that there's probably still a little bit of apprehension. You never get the chance to do a settlement under the guidelines and then see what happens if you never had disclosed and then choose your own adventure at that point. To some extent, these might still be negotiated and kind of backed into a little bit, but I mean, it's a huge number and they do stack up really, really, really fast, as Laura says. And so there's still going to be some people, I think, who are, particularly if they've not had any problems before, if they are not certain that there's any chance this would come out, where they still might be a little hesitant. 75% is great, but it's a percentage of something. And where that something might be is still maybe a bit unknown.
2: And the something is accompanied by some form of public criminal resolution, as well as the reputational harm and other issues that can go with it. So while this is an added incentive, and maybe we'll get to this, Tom, but what effect and how much it changes the evaluation in boardrooms is... a separate question. Well,
1: We're going to end with that question, but (laughs) before we get there, we're going to pick up Mike's thoughts on choosing your adventure in terms of what is extraordinary cooperation. Are are we in Potter Stewart territory now? I know it when I see it. ABB gave us some guidance in the SEC resolution, or the SEC basically said they turned over hot docs almost immediately, if not immediately. Laura, you touched on perhaps the attorney-client privilege and other commentators have raised that issue. Are we back to where we were in sort of post-Enron? I don't pretend to know the answers to any of those questions, but I wondered how we might be able to explore what really is extraordinary cooperation now.
0: When Lauren and I were preparing for this, Tom, Laura had a good concept, a buzzword maybe, but proactive. And so I know, Laura, if you want to explore that a little bit, but I thought that was a good way to give some concrete guidance to companies about one way to stay least on the good side of extraordinary.
2: Like Mike said, we we were talking about this. And I think, like you said, Tom, I think it will be, you know, when you see it, it's always going to be one of those things because it is a very subjective analysis by the prosecutors. How cooperative was the company? And some of the guidance and speeches that the department has made, they do talk about proactive cooperation being an aspect of sort of the expected full cooperation. How proactive, how often? I think that's a lot of where the difference will lie between full cooperation and extraordinary cooperation. It will be things like the department didn't even know about X and you rapidly brought that to their attention. You made it available to them. You translated it for them. Those sorts of things will all be in the range between full and extraordinary. But I think it is definitely something that will be very subjective, but it will largely depend on the speed and the fulsomeness of the material that is going from the company to the department.
0: One rule of thumb time might be instead of waiting for them to follow up with you, be aggressive about getting ahead of that and talking to them when you have a problem, there's something unexpected, there's a new custodian, there's a problem with the data. Maybe there's a local law that requires you to go through a certain process to get them the data, rather than Having them realize after a few months that they haven't heard from you and you blew some deadlines, being sure that you're the one coming to them with a good rhythm, good cadence is really one way to handle this. Laura and I were joking earlier that it can't be that as you're doing a review, the first level reviewer flags a hot document and that it's immediately sent to the DOJ. I mean, that's surely not what they want, nor what they have the resources to deal with. And presumably, there's still the principle that they want you to be able to articulate what it is you think you're seeing. Couple of this, though, with the expectation that individuals will be prosecuted in parallel to corporate investigations. It does mean that you really need to profit from someone like Laura with experience as a prosecutor to triage your review. Yeah, it'd be nice to leisurely sit and do a five or 10-year review of the entire ocean, but knowing what they need, particularly what they would need as evidence and how to get it to them in an evidentiary value would be important. If you know that a certain person was running the particular business partner or agent relationship that is likely going to be the big thing, focusing on that person's interactions with that third party or their interactions with the compliance function about that third party might be really important places to start.
2: I just want to add one thing. I think Mike made a really good point there, which is that a lot of this will go to how you conduct your own review. So, as the company is doing the internal investigation, in order to provide that extraordinary cooperation, you need to conduct the review in a way that is efficient and that gets to the main points faster, because that's how you can share them faster, or at least decide what should be shared and, you know, cooperative sense on a more rapid basis. So it's not just how you share it with the department, but it's how you gather it. Because in order to share it, you have to have it done efficiently in the first place.
1: And my biggest concern is not so much the attorney-client privilege. It's, it is having either someone like yourselves in the position outside external counsel or internal counsel of a company being able to give some thoughtful consideration to what this document means and what it may mean going forward. Uh, that's really the point that I haven't been able to resolve myself. You have to turn it over that quickly before you can, as you said, Mike, go beyond simply triaging it and saying, yes, we need to turn this over. But how does it fit into our overall either investigator strategy or our remediation strategy? And that's what I hope we don't lose.
2: I hope we don't as well. I will say that in my experience, there are instances where, you know, you see a document and you instantly know. This is a document that I'm super interested in. I'm sure they would be interested in. And there are often ways of handling that where you can sort of flag the existence of it without prohibiting the effort to also understand it. So it can be done in a way that does get you that credit for quickly flagging that such an issue has arisen, but we're going to responsibly investigate this. I'm going to get back to you very quickly about what this is and what this means and in my experience, for the the department accepts that, and they want that. They want that help. And then you get that extra credit, too. So that is one of the benefits you gain from cooperation is you are able to have that added credibility with the department where they do give you just a little bit more time to figure things out and get back to them. So, I hope, Tom, <laughs> that it doesn't become sort of the issue that you're talking about. There is the potential for that, of course. And the policies talk about deconfliction. So there is the possibility if you raise something right away, the department will say, don't talk to anybody about it. We want to do it first. So there is always that risk, and that needs to be carefully weighed by the company and by outside counsel. You weigh that risk against the risk that you won't be seen to be providing this extraordinary cooperation.
1: So let's get to the question that Mike alluded to, which once upon a time was called the $64,000 question. Does... The Monaco memo, the ABB, FCPA settlement, and now the changes to corporate enforcement policy really changed the calculus in perhaps the most difficult decision you guys, your clients, boards of directors will have to make. And that, of course, is self-disclosure.
0: You know, I think that it's still probably going to come down, frankly, to do people think it's going to come out or not. I'm stealing a concept from Laura that, that she used when we were talking, but I do think it is what we see. There is a lot of hand wringing on this topic. Usually it's a much easier decision if it's about to come out. There's a risk, of course, that you won't actually get credit for it if the only reason you're coming out is because you think it's going to come out. The ABB settlement was interesting because they kind of got the ask to have the meeting in before it came out in the media. It didn't quite have the meeting before the media reports, but still, I think in a good way, we're giving credit for that. So I, I think boards are still going to want to know, well, 75% of what? And does the of what change based on what we do and what exactly is the nature of the problem that we're looking at? I think the more that the government is able to show examples of the application of this increased benefit for exceptionally cooperating recidivists, and ABB is actually a great example of that, or the more they're able to say publicly about declinations, I think that's more meaningful necessarily than kind of what is a substantial increase in the discount, but it's still a little too abstract, I think.
2: I completely agree with Mike. I think that it may make a difference at the margins, but the main question that companies are always gonna be struggling with is, what's the real value of this? It does help that there is a higher potential decrease in the fine, it does help that they've sort of expanded who is open and eligible for a declination in the case of a self-report. But companies are still going to weigh all of the different pros and cons that come with a self-report. And one of the questions is always going to be, well, will they find out anyway? Because if they're not going to find out anyway, are we subjecting ourselves to additional oversight, to press reports about misconduct that we might not otherwise have? And yes, there are these benefits, So I think it will continue to be a very detailed and case-specific analysis, but the more guidance that comes out, be it in speeches, be it through the policy memos, or through resolutions and declinations, and the added transparency that the department is trying to give companies through the relevant considerations paragraph that they put in all of the resolutions now, that will help companies to look at it and make that evaluation
1: Well, guys, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me on this topic. We're going to link to the firm's client alert on the police speech and the changes to the corporate enforcement policy. I had a ton of fun, and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. Likewise.
2: Thanks, Tom.